Welcome into another edition of Home Run Throwback. I am Jimmy Morris, joined as always by Easton Freeth. Easton, how are you tonight? Jimmy, doing a lot better than the Steelers are right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, aren't aren't uh, they're dying a slow and painful death? Yeah. So, Chiefs, I but. mean, the game's over now. As, as we record this, uh, the Steelers have lost to the Chiefs, so we know that the Titans will be playing. The Bengals at 3.30 on Saturday at Nissan Stadium. So um, we recorded – anyway, so we have Mike Keith on the podcast tonight. Um, obviously, you know Mike Keith, voice of the Titans. Um, the, I mean, I think he's the best play-by-play guy in the NFL. I don't listen to, to that many of them, but he, he's obviously really great. So yes. some of the conversations that we had as we went through we weren't 100% sure. But now, as we record this, we know that the Titans will be playing the Bengals on Saturday. Um, so we'll have obviously a lot more on that as the week comes up, but before we get into this conversation with Mike, remind you as always this is home run throwback. Uh, you can get us wherever you get your podcasts, just search on home run throwback. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jay Morris MCM. You can follow Easton on Twitter at Easton freeze. It's a Broadway sports media podcast. Broadway sports media.com is your best place for Titans news and analysis. Obviously we will have a ton heading up into this playoff run. And, um, you know, we, we just finished our recording with Mike. He's great. I mean, obviously does a, a really good job with, with his time and, and is, is so generous to talk to us tonight. Um, just, it was, it was really fun to talk to him. And I don't know if you have any other takeaways that you want to throw out there kind of before we jump into that interview. No, man, he's great. Um, we have a great conversation with him. We talk a lot about the structure of the Titans team and you, you hear a lot of things from a lot of things from other guests, a lot of things that other guests wouldn't be able to provide. So I think that it's a really great conversation and you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. So with all of that being said, without further ado, we jump into our conversation with Mike Keith. Joined now by Voice of the Titans, Mike Keith. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. How are you tonight? Fine, Jimmy Easton. It's good to be with you. Yeah, we're glad, glad to have you. Uh, so starting off, I wanted to ask you, how would you – this is obviously the third time the Titans have been the number one seed since they came to Nashville, since they've been the Titans. How would you compare this team to those other two teams? No comparison. Uh, simply due to the fact that the 2000 team was the defending AFC champions, went 13-3, and three, had to win the last game to win the number one seed, but they were clearly thought of from the majority of the year going forward uh, that they were the, the odds-on to be the number one seed. The 2008 team started 10-0. and 0. When they beat the Steelers in week 16, they wrapped up the number one seed. You know, there really wasn't a lot to it. This team having to scratch and claw and fight and being eight and four at the bye, coming off two disappointing defeats and just everything that went into this, it was, it's just been a totally different ride and a totally different experience. And the other thing, too, the magnitude of it because of the fact that the the number one seed now is the only team that gets a buy in the 17 playoffs. I think that makes it dramatically different as well. Mike, there, there's a, there's a stigma around, maybe not stigma is the wrong word. I'm struggling to think there's, there's a lot of discussion every year around the first seed. Uh, well, in the past, the first and the second seed, um, the teams that get the buy in the playoffs, the discussion of rest, rust versus rest. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you see teams who get the buy, they come into the divisional round of the playoffs and it looks like they're in a lot better shape than the team that they're facing um, in terms of health. And it looks like the buy really benefited them. And then you sometimes see teams. Um, I think you could make a case for this when the Titans two years ago went up to Baltimore come off of the bye and they look like they haven't played football in a couple of weeks and they come out slow. Uh, what are your thoughts on whether the bye can be a detriment to a team? And if you think that might apply to this Titans team? I don't in this case, Easton, because I think the Titans had to fight their way in by winning the last game at Houston. 
just like last year and just like the year before. Um, <laughs> like every year? Yeah, it's like it seems like it's every year, right? It we, is Groundhog's we, Day with final we Texans end the game. season. It, yeah, the nice thing is Titans fans realize that I didn't meet one Titans fan after the win um, in Houston who said, boy, that was just terrible and I'm so disappointed. They're like, yes, we – we always have to do this and we won. So who cares? Right. Um, it was really good. So I, I think the fact that they had to fight their way in, the, the fact that they've had the injuries that they've had in 2008, they punted the last game at Indianapolis, didn't even play Chris Johnson, were shut out in that game. Um, and then they had a week off. And so I, that worried me. That worried me a lot because that team – um, had really shut it down after that Pittsburgh game. Right. And then, then they lose the, you know, they lose the other game. And, oh, man, it's just, you know, just so hard to put the whole thing together. In the case of um, this situation, it just it feels different. It's, it's like if the Titans don't win in the divisional round, I don't believe it's going to be because of the buy. I don't believe it's going to be because of rust. Mm. I think I would much rather take the chance with this team getting the rest, particularly because several guys on this team are old. Right. And so, so to me, it, it doesn't have the same feel, especially as 2008 did. Okay, we had a question on Twitter from Micah Simpkins at MDS underscore Titans 94. He said, does Mike think that Julio can be the difference maker in the playoffs that we visualize when we traded for him? And I think this is going to be a very you know, popular thing that's going to be talked about a lot this week is what can we expect to see from Julio Jones in this playoff run? I think what we saw at Houston, he's healthy. He can get open. He's a great third down weapon. I think we're going to see more of him. I think the buys and the, you know, the time off that he's had have helped him greatly. I think he's rejuvenated. The fact that he's on the field with A.J. Brown is a big deal. The fact that he's on the field with Nick Westbrook-Akina, the fact that Ferkser has sort of found his way again, I think Julio's going to be a big part of what the Titans do in the playoffs. I'll be very surprised if he's not. Well, and you mentioned him playing with A.J. Brown. I want to use that to maybe pivot to a, a question about A.J. Brown that uh, we got on Twitter. Um, do you think, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the last really three years with the Titans that the entire offense revolves around Derrick Henry, and uh, to an extent, that has been the case, right? Um, but the discussion about whether or not he is the entire offense because you hear the two different things, right? You hear him being the centerpiece of the offense, which is pretty clearly true. I think when he's uh, healthy and available, but then you hear folks say that he is the offense and that without him, the offense is nothing. And that was uh, a lot of the national discussion uh, at the midpoint of this season when Derek went down. And that obviously wasn't the case because although the offense struggled a bit, they, they got their act together just in time at the end of the season to finish strong. But a big part of that was getting AJ Brown back and it, it kind of seemed like this year demonstrated that AJ Brown is as pivotal to the success of this offense, if not more than Derrick Henry is because they, without Derrick Henry, were still able to run really efficiently, really effectively. Um, and AJ Brown coming back was all the difference uh, for the offense to, you know, start scoring 25, 30, 35 points a game. Do you think AJ Brown is kind of that guy that the entire balance of the offense rests on? Or do you think with him, that's also, kind of a hyperbole that he's not the entire thing. We were 11 and two with him and one and three without. Right. I'm talking about AJ. Right. So, I mean, AJ, you've got to have a one at receiver to have a great offense in this league. And AJ's our one. And he's the perfect one in our offense because of his power and what he can do with play action. So, I mean, I think he is vitally important to everything we do because teams are scared to death of him. They're scared right. he's going to catch one, break a tackle on the outside, and, you know, go 57 yards for a touchdown like he did against the Colts. They know he can take the top off. You know, you think about the deep routes that he's run over the years, the 91-yarder when the Raiders were back in Oakland in 19. 
last year, the deep ball he caught to set up the Sam Sloman field goal in Houston. You've got to respect everything he does. Defensive backs have to fear him. He's He'll run any route. You know, it's not like he's a, a three-route runner who only does certain things. He'll do anything, and he'll block. So I, I think A.J. is a great one for us in particular, and we are vastly different without him. Now, the Kings, the King. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's nobody right. like Derrick Henry. But when you got guys like that, you know, it's just – it makes all the difference in the world to have a quarterback who can operate an offense, but a quarterback, I don't care who it is, has to have weapons. Now that was the difficulty that Tannehill went through in part of the season is he was throwing to a group of receivers at one point then that in essence were guys who would play in the final preseason game for us. And you just can't, and, and I don't mean to insult them, but that they weren't no. on the roster. Sure. You know, it just you you've got to as Coach Mack likes to say, you got to have your dudes. And AJ is certainly a dude who can make a lot of things happen. With that being said, obviously, like you said, the king is the king. Um, he's coming back for this game. We're all assuming he hasn't you know officially been activated yet, but that's the looks like the plan. What do you think we get from Derrick Henry from the jump? I mean, is he going? Are they going to? go back to running the offense through him like they were before he got injured? Do you think there's a bit of an ease-in period? What do you expect we see from him in this first game? That's a great question. You you have asked the $64,000 question, Jimmy. I don't have any idea what they're going to do. <laughs> um, and, and the reason I don't, and I can say that with a totally straight face, is I have not seen him practice in that way. I have not seen him practice in the scheme yet. I've seen him run drills. I've seen him run plays, but I haven't watched them game plan for an opponent with him being involved. It was pretty obvious when we watched him practice two weeks ago that I think he wanted to play. I really do knowing him, but I don't think that that was ever the plan. I think the plan was to get him back and start him back to work and things of that sort. And then last week they did very little on the field. So until we kind of see, um, I, you know, it would feel like Foreman has a role, right? And it would feel like Hilliard probably takes over as the third down back, although McNichols is back on the practice squad and could certainly be recalled. Uh, I don't know that it, it goes back to 35 carries. I mean, it, it wouldn't, it would surprise me if that were the case, but how do you rule out anything with Derrick Henry? How, how can I sit here and say to you, knowing this guy who is this unbelievable athlete, how do I say that I know he's not going to carry 25 times? Logic would say he doesn't, but the king defies logic. I mean, he's a totally different beast in terms of what he's able to do and his incredible conditioning and his athleticism. So I can't wait to see practice this week, which is not something I always say. I, I'm not a guy who just dies to go to practice. I played football. I didn't like practice when I played. Um, I've been to several thousand practices. Generally, a lot of them look the same. I'd normally go out for the team period so I can watch sort of, you know, game planning and substitutions and things like that. I don't like to watch the tip drills once we get into the season. Um, so I go, but I, I don't love it. I, I'm going to love going this week because I'm dying to see what they're going to do. Yeah, I'm with you, Mike. It's going to be really interesting to see what they do with him this week, what he looks like. Uh, we saw a bit of him last week, and he looked to be doing pretty well. Uh, didn't look to be favoring uh, a single mm. leg or anything like that. Um, but, you know, live speed is live speed. This is a bit of a comment before I transition with this question. You, you, you saw a number of people wanting to see him play in that Texans game um, mm -hmm. because their rationale seemed to be that, you know, you want to give him a couple of live reps to get him, you know, back to used to football shape. And I just, I, I thought that was ridiculous because it's not like he'd gone an entire off season without playing football, right? In, mm -hmm. in October, you know, two months ago, he was not just playing football, but 
playing more football than most anybody in the league in terms of the amount of snaps he was taking, the amount of carries he had, the amount of hits he was taking. So those calluses haven't gone away in, in the two months that he's been off. And obviously he's stayed in shape. He looks just as big, if not bigger than he was uh, in the footage we saw last week. True. He's, he's True. still a mountain of a guy. So I, I thought that was a bit ridiculous. And I think that you're right that Foreman will continue to have a role just because like you said, 35 carries out of the gate is probably not realistic. Um, even for a guy like Derrick Henry, now, if he does it in, you know, if there's going to be somebody to do it, like you said, it's not, it's going to be Derrick Henry. Um, but you saw, speaking of that Houston game, you saw the offense maybe look as close to form um, to what they were last year in that first half last week. I believe the statistic was Ryan Tannehill completed a pass to 10 or 11 different receivers. Uh, they were running the ball effectively. They were scoring with relative ease. Obviously, in the second half, that third quarter in particular, they kind of fell asleep there for a minute and, and had to, you know, it, the game got closer than it should have been. But in that first half, you had AJ and Julio both in the game contributing the way that you expect them to contribute. You had guys like Anthony Ferkser, who have been kind of question marks this year as to where are they, right? He's a guy that you came in expecting him to kind of take over that tight end one position. And he hadn't done um, as much as people were expecting of him, frankly. And he was playing a pretty big role in that first half. Is there something that, is there, a, I mean, Ryan Tannehill was playing great, who's been up and down this year. But again, a lot of that's been attributable to who he's been playing with. Was there something besides the fact that they were just playing the Texans uh, that you think led to that? Was there a switch that flipped? I found it confusing that they had kind of turned it on and then turned it off in the third quarter. And then Ryan Tannehill managed to turn it back on for him kind of single-handedly in the fourth. What, what stood out to you about that offensive performance? Protection was good. And I think that was a big part of it. Uh, the, the first half protection was outstanding. Um, they took advantage of field position, which was a big deal, you know, which is something you always want to be able to do. Um, I thought the involvement of Julio Jones was a big factor. You know, catching those 12-yard slants and those cut-ins and, you know, mm -hmm. the things that, that he does. Because suddenly, with, with him, if you don't defend that, they'll just keep doing it. They'll throw mm -hmm. 30 passes, you know, because right. you can't stop it. So th that's the trouble with Julio is – he may not be, and I say the trouble for the opponent is what I mean, of course. Sure. But he, he may not be Julio of 2014, but he's still big and nasty and physical, and he, he has a massive catch radius, and he's not afraid. And if some little dinky corner gets up there and, and tries to, you know, tries to stop him, he should get thrown out of the way. You have to scheme towards Julio Jones. Because even for where he is in 2021, he's still Julio Jones. And I, I think that part of it opened up some things for other people as well. And I think the other thing, too, is you're starting to see Tannehill has gotten more work with Julio since the bye. They're starting to get more on the same page. Absolutely. So I, I think all of those things factored in. I mean, I'm, I'm an amateur at being an offensive coordinator, I, I don't know everything that goes with it, but I do That's know crazy because I know a lot of people on Twitter that are professional offensive coordinators they've really been talking good. about all yes. year. Yeah, all year. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's been, a, it's been a lot about protection. Yep. It's been a lot about being predictable because of your personnel. It's, you know, they're just some things you couldn't do when Cody Hollister was in the game that you can do when AJ Brown's in the game, it's just different. And Cody did fine when he played and, and Nick Westbrook Akina is a different player as a two or a three than he is trying to line up as a one. hundred again, that's not meant as a knock. So I just think maybe there's a little karma. Maybe there's a little good fortune. Mm. Uh, all of these things have just sort of fallen into place at once. Yeah, it's going to be fun to see. Like you said, I, I think a lot of people have kind of written Julio off, but um, he, he's still Julio Jones. And it, it's going to be fun now that you've, you know, I mean, looks like they're going to have 
the offense they thought they would have at the, at the beginning of the year in this game. I mean, for the first time since what week two, um, I'm trying to think the last time that that, that Seattle Henry game, I think. And, yeah, that's a, Henry and Julio and AJ Brown all on the field at the same time. Um, it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be fun. All right, transitioning to the defense. Um, the defense has probably been the biggest surprise of the season, just based off of what we saw from them last year. And then the transition that they've made this year to being a really solid unit with a good pass rush, which was obviously, you know, the biggest issue last year was they had trouble getting after the quarterback. What have you seen as the biggest difference from this defense versus what we saw last year? This is going to sound smart alecky, but I mean it completely. They have better players. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's the first thing it comes down to is the overall talent has improved. The overall speed of the defense has improved. And, you know, you've, you've got Amani Hooker as the full-time starter at safety with Kevin Byard. You've got Christian Fulton becoming, you know, the guy everybody hoped he would become for the most part. He still hasn't played his best football, but he's clearly a lot better player than he was a year ago. And I think probably a better corner that they had at any point last year. Jackrabbit Jenkins has done a nice job. Uh, Elijah Molden has stepped in at the nickel. And then look what they've gotten out of Buster Screen. They've rotated through linebackers. And right now, um, the guys who are playing are doing an outstanding job. Bud Dupree is playing like Bud Dupree. Uh, Danico Autry is the Swiss Army knife. They're able to do some more natural things with Harold Landry. And so his numbers have gone up. Um, again, it's about because you've added talent, you've put guys in roles. And, and listen, too, I, I think what Vrabel did naming Shane Bowen as the, the outright defensive coordinator. And the other important thing, too, is not having him coach a position. And I've, I've been saying this and people are like, well, no, he's a really good outside linebacker coach. But when you have a room that you have to operate like a position room then you can't be a walk-around coordinator. You can't go sit in the secondary meetings. You can't spend time with, you know, with Jim Haslett talking about things. You're, you, you're, you're running meetings for a position group. He doesn't have to do that anymore. And I think the combination of the two things, better people and just this fit of this staff, and it really is a good staff. I mean, you think about, Jim Hazlitt and Jim Schwartz and Anthony Midget and Scott Booker and Ryan Crow and Terrell Williams coaching the defensive line. I mean, they're, they're really, really good. And then you have Shane, who's this bright, young, talented guy. And I think people are seeing what he's all about right now. So credit to Vrabel for saying, you know what? That didn't work out as well as I wanted it to. I'm willing to change it. Uh, he's he's not pigheaded about stuff like that, which is why I think he's an outstanding head coach. Well, and Mike, I think that's a great point. I think that obviously they have better players, but but the the coordination has to have been a significant role here. You had guys like Kevin Byard last year, kind of winking and nodding at the fact that these guys weren't all that coordinated last year, and you know the players weren't as good either. But uh, they they didn't seem to necessarily be on the same page for a lot of a lot of the season and this year they seem to be a lot, I mean, really just a lot more coordinated and that, that is a credit to Shane Bowen and the, and the job that he's done. I want to talk more about one player that you brought up. And I think that he is quite possibly the most underrated player on the team, if not maybe in the the league in terms of the impact he's had on this unit um, this season. And I think that that player is Danico Autry. I think mm -hmm. that, that bringing him in was one of the best, you know, besides obviously the Ryan Tannehill trade, one of the best acquisitions that John Robinson has made for this team. And it kind of went under the radar because that was around the time in the off season when there was a lot of focus on big pass rush acquisitions, the Bud Dupree acquisition. Um, and, and, the, you know, the Titans signing him away from the Colts was a big deal, but it, it wasn't really something that was considered a, a game-breaking move. And since he's come in from the jump, he has been 
the force multiplier for that passes in that front four. All four of those guys are really, really great players. But it seems to me that he's been the key to unlocking the the potential for this pass rush. Um, and and the fact that he's been in there healthy, playing at the level that he's been playing, that's really meant a, a large part of the difference. What what have you seen from him? You talk to these guys, you talk to these coaches. What do you hear about him in the locker room, the guy that he's been for this team? I like Danico a lot, and I've gotten to know him just a little bit. He's a trip. Um, Danico is um, – he's nearly 32 years old. Wow, I didn't it's, know that. It's a, yeah, so you're signing this guy, and, you know, he, he went to junior college, and, and, and then he ends up at Mississippi State, and he was, he's a good player at State. But he doesn't get drafted, and he goes to the Raiders, and nobody can quite figure out what to do with him because he's not – I mean, he's bigger than I am, but he's not big for a defensive lineman. No, he's, he's not. He's 6'4", 6'5", he's 280 maybe, but is he a 4'3 defensive end? or is it, Well, here's the thing. He could just play. You yeah. can line him up anywhere. The, that, the exactly. Titans, the Titans have been playing him at outside linebacker. He play he plays inside. He plays on the edge. He, I've had multiple I mean, people ask me this yeah. year, where, where, what does he, what position does he play? And the answer well, you know, is yeah. Games, the answer he, is yes. Some, some games he doesn't start. Right. And he doesn't care. You know, if they're, if there's in certain formations, they'll start Naquan Jones or Kyle Pecco or it doesn't matter to him. Um, he, he just comes in and plays, and he's relentless in terms of how much he enjoys playing and how smart he is. You know, you've seen him on multiple occasions run down screens. Instead of being fooled into continuing to rush the passer, he stops his rush, and then he'll run down a screen, and which is an incredibly smart play that a lot of defensive linemen can't make. And that's one of the – sort of unnoticed things about pass rushers is sometimes all they are is one trick ponies. They right. just rush the passer. That's all they do is rush the passer. They rush the passer on every play, even if it's a running play. Danico doesn't do that. Danico plays the run. He, he stays with the quarterback on bootlegs. He can drop into the flat. He knows how to bat down a pass. He has nine sacks. Um, this is just a guy who's just a really good ball player. And I mentioned him earlier as the Swiss Army knife because he has fit in in so many different roles. Uh, it's, been, it's been exciting to see, and it's been smart how they've used him too because, like I said, he's not young. He's got mileage. You have to manage a guy with mileage, and Vrabel has done a great job with that with several guys this year. Talk a little bit about Zach Cunningham. I mean, that's a move that, you know, mm. when, when he was cut from the Texans and then there was talk of I mean, obviously Vrabel was with him in Houston, and I didn't think there was any way he was going to get to the Titans on waivers. And then there was some, you know, these, some of these analytics guys on Twitter talking about how he can't play anymore, he's not that good, and blah, 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 blah. From what I've seen, and you mentioned it earlier with this linebacker group that they have now and, and how good it is and how many different things they can do. There was a play in a Texans game where uh, he like shedded a block and then ran down a, a guy that had, had caught a pass. And it was just like, he looks like, I mean, not just a football player first off, but a guy that is really an impact guy in the middle of the defense and the Titans were able to, to pick him up for nothing. I mean, to me, it, he looks like a guy that just allows them to do even more things on defense than they were already doing before. Well, I think it's true. And he is a violent tackler. He gets there and you are going to the ground. You are not falling forward. You are not falling sideways. You are going backward. He can knock you loose of the ball. He has tremendous length for, I mean, he's a, he's an unusual build. He's like a bigger version of Keith Bullock in terms of his height and his weight and, I mean, he, he kind of looks like a basketball player getting off the bus. Um, but, I mean, he is some kind of player. I mean, I, I jumped up and down when we got him. I admit. I was just <laughs> – I did. I, 
I was tired of playing against him. It's kind of like Danico. I was tired of playing against Danico. And, you know, just knowing we wouldn't have to play against him again, there was much happiness in my heart. But he's a difference maker. You know, he, he's a guy who makes plays at big moments that turn games. And he didn't want to be in Houston anymore. I haven't talked to him about it, but I think that's pretty obvious. He wants to be here. He's excited. He's having a good time. And, you know, sometimes that happens. You know, sometimes a guy desperately needs a change of scenery. And I don't need to know all the reasons. I don't need to know all the reasons. All I know is 41 is helping this defense dramatically. Mike, I want to transition to where the Titans are now and what they're looking looking at going forward, going into the divisional round next week. Now we're recording this in the middle of the Steelers chiefs game. And although there is technically a chance that the Bengals are not the team coming to Nashville next week. So you're saying there's a chance. I am. Well, actually I'm saying there's not a chance, <laughs> frankly, because the Steelers are, are losing by a significant margin right now. So if they, if the corpse of Ben Roethlisberger miraculously comes back, I, I will happily have this next question rendered uh, not, irre- irrelevant, but assuming they lose this game and it is the, the, uh, uh, the Bengals coming to town next week. You, you told me before we recorded that you watched the, the Bengals game, uh, this weekend and you watched that, that, um, is pretty good. Actually one of the best, if not the best, uh, wildcard weekend game we had against the Raiders. What stood out to you about that team? You know, I'm sure you were watching it thinking about, you know, how this team might match up with with the Titans team. If they are the team that comes to Nashville, um, what stood out to you about them? And, and is, is there something that maybe is a concern about that potential matchup? Or do you think that there's some strengths to the Titans there that they can exploit? Well, I think there's a lot of concern. I, I think there's a tremendous amount of concern because of Joe Burrow. And we saw this movie last year, you know, they're one, four and one, I think, or one, five and one when we go up there to play them November 1st. And they, they kicked our tails in that game. And um, Burrow threw for 249 and two scores. Um, They were able to do some nice things in the run game. And because of the injury, they didn't have Joe Mixon that day. They obviously didn't have Jamar Chase yet. I mean, they, you know, between Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, uh, Uzama, the tight end, Mm -hmm. uh, the way they throw to Mixon, I mean, they, they are really deadly. What jumps out to me in watching them again today was the way their football team really fits together well. And what I mean by that is their defense is very, very solid, very smart. They make you work really hard at everything. Their offense is obviously what makes them go. But their defense does a good job getting the ball back for, for them keeping teams from scoring touchdowns, uh, getting off the field in certain situations. And their special teams are really good, too. They have a 13-year punter who they drafted in 2009. And then they got this kicker from Florida, Evan um, McPherson. McPherson. He's made, yeah, he's made nine kicks of 50 yards or more. And it's a, it's a really, really well-crafted roster with a lot of good young players. They are, they are young and talented, and they're fearless right now. Some would say they don't know any better, and that's okay, too. I mean, we, we've been in situations over the years where we didn't know any better. Uh, in that can be dangerous. We, you are dangerous. We yeah. went to San Diego to play the Chargers in LaDainian Tomlinson in 2007, and we had no wide receivers on the roster who ran under 4'8", and led them into the third quarter. And if we, if we get the right call at the goal line on a play, we had stopped it. That game gets more interesting, but you know, when you're like that, sometimes you're even more dangerous. And I mean, I think they'll come in here winging it around all over the place. They'll take a lesson from Davis mills and they'll probably go no huddle and they'll try to work us over and and we've got to be ready to answer that. I was looking back this week with the other teams in the division and a, a lot of issues that those teams have, um, it, it wasn't that long ago that the Titans were in a similar situation where you just felt like if anything could go wrong, it would go wrong. And there were 
so many bad decisions and it seemed like big holes they had to climb out of. And it seems to me, looking back at that, that the biggest thing that changed was when Amy Adams Strunk took over as the controlling owner of this team. And you can kind of trace back. I mean, obviously, bringing in John Robinson was a huge thing. Um, hiring Mike Vrabel as the as the head coach, a huge thing. But to me, it looks like the real turning point for this run that the team is currently on was when Amy Adams took over as the controlling owner. W- would you agree with that assessment of where they are right now? 150%. I, I mean, you're absolutely correct. Because we were at a moment where we didn't know what we wanted to be. Mm. And we, we, just, we just didn't have any direction in anything that we were doing. And she took over and she made it very clear that she was going to spend the next few months sort of laying low, learning it, and figuring out, you know, what needed to happen next. Because she had not worked on a day-to-day basis with the football team. And so if you'll remember this, as we went through 2015, she took over in the spring. She never did an interview. She didn't do one interview. And we go through the 2015 season and we lose to Houston and she fires uh, Ken Wisenhunt and she promotes Mike Malarkey. And we go through the rest of that year and everybody's like, who is she? What's she doing? We never hear from her. She doesn't know what she's doing. But what her overall plan was, is she said, you know, we got to have a plan. We don't have a plan, so we have to come up with a plan. And so she hired John Robinson, and she kept, uh, at that point, she, she kept Mike Malarkey. And then at the point where we had reached, you know, we'd gone to the playoffs, and she had to make a decision on Malarkey. And listen, Malarkey's a good football coach. But she said, you know, I just don't think you and John are on the same page for where we're going next. I'm not going to let you go into a lame duck year and then make a decision. I'm going to make a decision now. And so then she went and got Mike Vrabel. And the stability that has come through all of that totally comes through her. Because she has given the entire organization a focus and a plan. Uh, Honestly, Jimmy, that's a fabulous question. And it's not talked about enough. And I mean, listen, she signs my paychecks. So (laughs) everybody listening is going to think, well, that's the only reason he's saying. Yeah, real hard to talk nice about her, Mike. Real hard. (laughs) But but I'm just telling you as somebody who was there at the moment. Yeah. In the spring of 2015. We were in a world of hurt. Yeah. And she she solved that. And she didn't come in and solve it right that second. You know, she didn't come in and say, I have all the answers at that moment. But she had some. And she continued to build her confidence. And I, I thought just did a, you know, she's just done a whale of a job for us. I love working for her. I really do. Well, and that's the point that I would make. I mean, she fires Wisenhunt in in his second year, where I mean, I don't know how much money they still owed him, but it was a significant amount of money it for was a, a lot of money. Sure, for a franchise that had been labeled as cheap for a really long time, right? She makes that decision, and then, like you said, Mike Malarkey, I think sometimes gets a it's a little bit of a, of a disservice for what he did here because I think he changed the culture of this team. I think he got the team moving in the right direction. But then, like you said, I mean, to come from a year where they win a playoff game and then to to go ahead and make that decision to move on there, um, I mean, that that couldn't have been an, an easy call for her to make, but she was able to make those – I mean, those are the two decisions to me that point to, you know, this may not be the best, you know, fiscal decision because now you're paying another coach to not coach and, and all those types of things. But she was willing to pull the trigger on those deals – and when you kind of trace it all back, those are the, the, the couple of decisions there that really got this, this thing moving in the direction, in the, the trajectory that we see it on now. Well, you know, how Amy sees it is this is a billion-dollar business. You know, the NFL thing is a billion-dollar business. And so in certain instances, 
if you're going to move your business forward, you have to make these financial decisions. She doesn't see it as necessarily. I mean, she did the same thing with, you know, uh, the group that was doing concessions at the stadium. So the fans told her they didn't like the concessions at the stadium. So she bought them out. And, and, you know, you can look at a payoff as, well, that's, that's a mistake. And so you're paying for a mistake. In some cases, what you're doing is what's the statement you make to your season ticket members when you do that? And does that make them re-up? Because they're like, hey, the owner's listening. My experience is better. I'm going to come back. She knew that Ken Wisenhunt wasn't the right fit for our organization. She knew it. She had gotten that. And so she just said, why sit around and you know, go two or three more years or, or whatever. She said, we're not going to be bound by that. The, the part of her that's so incredible is just what we call, and she's a horse person, so it's funny. You talk about horse sense, common sense, right? There is a common sense factor to her that she has said in multiple places where I've been at different times, well, why don't we just do X? And everybody goes, well, we could, but it would be, you know, this. And she's like, well, just do that. And you walk out of the room and you go, that is so smart. <laughs> because, <laughs> because sometimes what you're held to is you're held to what we've done in the past. And, you're, and you don't think about, well, what if we do something else? You know what I'm saying? I, I, that, that's... That's what's been so refreshing about her coming in from a different business. And yet she's so smart and she has learned this business and she's invested in people. She doesn't bother John Robinson all the time or Mike Vrabel. Does she want to know what's going on? Yes, she does. Absolutely. Does she have opinions? Of course she does. But she's not saying, hey, run the draw play here, you know, or get rid of this player and draft this player and whatever. She lets her people do their thing and she hires good people. And then John Robinson has been the ultimate fit for her. Now, I mean, if you look who they interviewed in that search, I mean, there were some pretty impressive people, but John is her guy. You know what I'm saying? John is the guy that she connects with. And that was so important in that moment in time, because she was new. And that implicit trust, somebody who really speaks her language, I think has met a great deal. Mike, in the NFL, there are two types of owners that are highly detrimental to a an organization, right? You have the, the owners that are, are meddlers, and you have the owners that I think there's really nothing worse than ownership that is is directionless, that's rudderless. And you look at teams like the New York Giants, for example, right now, and they didn't finish the worst team in the league. But I, I think just based on where they are and you hear their owner talk in press conferences and, and it's a team that just lacks direction and there's nothing more hopeless than that. It sounds to me like Amy Adams Strunk is the opposite of those two things, that she doesn't meddle and that she has has a firm direction for her her franchise. And I think that's exactly what you want from the owner of your franchise, the owner of your team. Speaking of strong direction, uh, I want to ask you about, and I have a feeling I might know uh, where you might go with this, but I want to ask you about Mike Vrabel and the job that he's done <laughs> and the job that he's done this year. I don't know if there's an award out there that you think that he might be deserving of, but regardless um, he's just done an incredible job. And the, the combination of finishing first in the conference and simultaneously simultaneously having broken the record for most players used in a season is to me enough to warrant um, coach of the year consideration. And, and all and we know the, the, the long, long list of minutia that he has had to overcome the number of things that have gone wrong for this Titans team. And the number of things that he has willed this team past, regardless of who they lost, when they lost them, um, who they lost to, right? Um, they continued to to churn and and chug along, and 
I, I feel like I'm saying a lot of the things you're going to say here, but just tell me about your impression of Mike Vrabel and the job that he's done this year in particular. He's done a better job every single year. He mm. continues to grow as head coach. I mean, you think about this, his first year, he loses the longest game in NFL history. He loses his quarterback. He loses his left tackle. Delaney Walker breaks his ankle all in the first game. And they figure out a way to beat a good Houston team in the, in the second game by running, you know, the single wing for a good bit of the game. I mean, they just, you know, run a fake <laughs> yeah. punt. Kevin Byard throws a 66-yard pass. Yeah. So the team doesn't have enough juice to beat the Colts in the, in the final game of the regular season. Mariota doesn't play, and they don't beat the Colts. And then, then the second year, go to the playoffs, you, you change quarterbacks, which is a big decision. Because at the moment you're taking Marcus Mariota out of the, the lineup, it's over. You know, that relationship is over at that moment. You, you have said in year five, this is not going to work. And you have to go to your owner about that. You have to sit down with your general manager, your two and four, and you make that change. And then what do you do? You run nine and four the rest of the year and go to the AFC championship game. Last year, you deal with the biggest COVID outbreak in the league. You find a way to win a couple games you should never win based on the fact you didn't practice in 16 days. Kind of out of gas at the end of the year when you get to the playoffs and you lose to Baltimore, but you, you win the division. And then this, you know, this offseason, you say goodbye to two offensive weapons so you can spend that money on defense. You redo your defensive staff in terms of of the management of, of how it's going to be run. You have to hire a new offensive coordinator because for the second time in your tenure, your offensive coordinator becomes a head coach. And you, you've kind of dealt, dealt with all the things that you were talking about with the injuries. Vrabel's just a really good head coach, and he continues to get better at it all the time. Yep. Um, he, he works at it. He will admit he's wrong. Um, he will change. He invests a lot in people. You know, I, I told Jimmy the story before on this podcast, but I mean, on the practice field, he coaches hard. But off the field, he's not that way with his players at all. And they value him and they really like him. He knows on the field he's, he's going to coach hard. And he tells them that. And there's an understanding. They know what to expect from him every single day. He's not going to fall apart. He's not going to have a temper tantrum or, you know, take it out on someone or look to point the finger at someone because, I mean, he takes blame and he handles the, the good moments. Maybe even he handles the bad moments maybe better than he handles the good moments. Mm. So I, I, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. I, I love working with him. I love watching his process. Uh, he likes to give me the business all the time, you know, <laughs> I, I can handle it. So yeah. we're, but it, it's, it's a lot of fun to see him develop in this way. And I had a hint early on, he would be this good. Uh, just really? from how he, yeah. When, when I met him, I just thought this guy gets it. And he really does. He, he really truly gets it. All right. Last question tonight, Mike, before we let you get out of here, this one comes from Trevor at T post MAA. Besides the oh, Super Bowl, it's good. Yeah, besides the Super Bowl <laughs> run, what is the your favorite playoff game that you have called for this franchise? Beaten New England two years ago. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, because I was there when they beat us fifty nine to nothing. I was there when they kept yeah. us out of the playoffs in two thousand six and put Vinny Testaverde in the game to throw a touchdown pass. Um, I, you know, I've seen a couple things <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and knowing the history of this league and appreciating the history of this league and understanding the magnitude of that moment, that was, that was going to be the end of Brady Bilicek. And we put out the world champions at their place. Their fans were shocked and we beat them. There was no fluke. We were the better team um, to see our fans that night who were there. Um, it wasn't more special than to see our fans the next week in Baltimore, but I mean, it was, it was emotional. 
you know, those two weeks were incredibly emotional to me because we had been through all that we had been through over the course of, you know, in essence, nine years being out of it. And we were doing something really special. And we, we also knew at that moment, we were on the cusp of something special with our organization. Had a good team and, and a good bunch of guys and, and a good general manager and a good head coach. And I've said it before, these are the good old days. The, these are the best days that I have had in my time with the Titans because we have a chance to, to be in the mix and do something special. And that's all you can ask for is just ask for a chance. Please, please, please just give us a shot. And here we are. And if you're a fan, if you're a player, a coach, if you work for the team, if you broadcast the team, you know how hard this league is. And you, you're just so thankful to be in the middle of it. Um, I'll go take my swing next week, whatever that's going to be. And um, I have a feeling, you know, if we get that one, you know, having a chance to host the AFC championship game will be as good a moment as we've ever had so far. Yeah, absolutely. There's been, there've been a lot of good moments, but it it feels like this one is shaping up to be really special. Like you said, the, the Titans have never hosted an AFC championship game. With all the, the success they had, especially early on, uh, th- those games have always been on the road. So that's going to be really fun to see how that all plays out. Well, Mike, 100%. thank you so much for your time, as always. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to catch up with you again down the road. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. So that was Mike Keith, the voice of the Titans. And you can obviously check him out during the broadcast uh, of the games and also on the podcast that they do, the official Titans podcast. Brought to you by Broadway Sports Media.